Hello everyone, it's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman Podcast. Today I'm going to be talking about intimacy with and as nature. I'll be telling some stories and sharing some insights from wonderful authors on eco-psychology and some ideas on how we can live in a more connected way, in fact, in love with being an earthling. And maybe in falling in love, we will see again the link between the personal and the planetary. So I have been uh, sitting a lot in my meditations out in nature. And in one recent one, I watched a slight man with a two-wheeled plow turning up a rice paddy, moving circularly around the rim and then moving inward. And as he moves, the green scraps of the last harvest turn into a gray mud, and first one, and then three, and then ten white herons are following in his wake, grabbing their midday snacks of worms and snails and things. And I sat there imagining the life of this rice farmer and how he dwells inside the vibrant family-based community and rituals of Bali. I'll tell you a little bit about some of those rituals um, after I tell you about this particular observation. I imagine his life, but then I also look at the herons again, and I think of how his relationship with the herons might be. He's encountering them on the daily. He's moving so slowly. What is the pace of his observation? What kind of relationship does he have? How is he reading the landscape after 50 years of doing this work? And I'm with him in his pacing, and I watch my whole body drop into an even slow rhythm and a fat neon blue, like super neon cyan Javanese kingfisher starts running back and forth across the fields and from tree to tree. And while that bird is doing its thing, it's crisscrossed by at least five different kinds of butterflies, including one huge swallowtail type of species with black velvet wings and red dots. And I'm not sure on the names of these beings, but I do know that I've seen the same pattern in other ecosystems that I've bothered to sit long enough and stay within. And the interweaving between the things that fly back and forth, the insects and the bees and the things that are forming the soil, and then the place-based rooted things is, is, is such an incredible interweaving you know, how the rooted need the mobile and nimble for the whole system to work and how the nimble need the rooted to create the anchoring and spaces and environments for them to do their job, how everything needs each other. And what does it mean to, you know, love this fabric, to know it, to be intimate with it, to have a relationship with it, to treat it as subjective, that every item you're seeing in natural creation, rocks and birds and grasses and mycelium, that they all have their own subjectivity, that they have the right to be, the right to exist, unique qualities, and that we can enter into relationship with them. So I'm here with my friend Desi, and she was telling us yesterday about the incredible relationship the farmers have to the land. So I thought you could tell everybody about 
the rituals of planting and how the cycle works. Okay, so it might be a bit long, but I would like to <laughs> make it <laughs> as quickly as possible. For Balinese, we treat the rice tree like a human, like uh, it's part of the relation of the human and the god, but also with the nature. So mm. we call it tree hita karana, which mm. is mean three kind of relationship. Mm. That creating a happiness. Oh. So in Sanskrit, three <laughs> means three, hita means happiness, and karana is the cause. So okay. three cause of happiness, which right. is human with the nature, human with human, and human with the God. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, so <laughs> the relationship of us and the uh, rice tree is like the relation with the nature. So when you start planting, we do the ritual of the offering. We call it mamula, mm. which is means preparation for the planting. And then we start, you know, like making a, a seed, uh, like sprouting the rice. Uh, and then, uh, as you know, everything with the hands. So they will make a little area and then uh, the sprout come out around two weeks. We will pick it up with the hands, take out, and then we replant again with the hands. And then there's another offering for that. I saw that in the rice fields yeah. yesterday. They had put up a small altar with marigolds and were basically saying, okay, we're beginning. Yes. A blessing on the beginning. Yes, you're right. Yes. Oh, I'm glad you saw in the person. Yeah. So <laughs> that's the process, the first one. And then after we replant, so we will do manuring, like weeding, you know, taking out all the weed that might make the rice tree uh, not mm. growing well. And then we have another offering it's like one month's offering we call it in area we call it muguakan so, uh, so it's when the right when the right one, is month. one month old yes one okay. month old we call it nadu sorry yeah there's many different way to mention it but nadu is like blessing the rice tree mm -hmm. uh, because i live close to the bat cave uh, and you know but poo is a guano which is yeah. very <laughs> smelly incredibly <laughs> smelly and but a good fertilizer yeah <laughs> so we take it as a blessing because in the bat cave there's a temple so we take it as a blessing from the temple and bring it to our rice mm. field just like blessing the whole area of so, the rice so this point of fertilizer you even bless yeah. the fertilizer yeah yeah as sort of an offering that yeah. is then going to feed the rice yes oh, oh, you got that point okay, okay. and then Two months old, there will uh -huh. be another offering. Uh, this is what we call maguakan or mayuayu, which is means like removing the obstacles kind of, you know, mm -hmm. like we, in my area, uh, we make a shrine, a little shrine, and we put the offering over there, and there will be a rice cake, like uh, woven coconut leaves with the rice inside, and we cook it. So you can imagine how hard it is. Yeah, yeah. Puck, like what we call yeah. a hockey puck. Oh, wow. <laughs> Here we call it ketupat. No, <laughs> okay, similar. similar. <laughs> okay, so what's happened to the rice cake, we hang it to the shrine, but we cannot take it ourselves. So usually here we take the uh, offering after we over it, we take it as prasad, like in India. But in this case, you cannot take yours. You can take the other person's rice cakes, which is so like... this is like fun and games. Yeah. <laughs> Basically what I'm hearing is that a lot of work in the beginning and a lot of work at the end, but like in the middle, there's some time for some yeah, play. Yeah, 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 you're right. So uh, for me, it's a beautiful way to, you know, taking care of your neighbor. Mm. Uh, like uh, you look at their shrine and see if there's still rice cake, you have to take it. Well, we, we like to take it because it's say if your rice cake is being taken, mm your rice field will be in a good crop. Mm. So 
yeah it's good and people who see our ri uh, rice cakes they also will take it so so it's like a blessing on the, yes on the, okay. I love that you're checking in with uh -huh. spirit uh -huh. throughout this whole process and uh -huh. it's also kind of a way of marking time uh -huh. but it, the time is is it always on the month or is it based on like where how big the rice is mm, so it's when I say one month two months uh, it's based on our traditional calendar oh, okay. so everything that we do is basically we will check it into our uh, traditional calendar we call it Pawukon or also it's like astrological yeah calendar kind of lunar. a little bit lunar but not quite yeah yeah yeah, yeah you're right it's kind of chinese influence to the uh, balinese hindus traditions and yeah it's not in a certain months in gregorians but right. in our own time okay in our own so time. two months we're having the rice cake game mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then <laughs> ritual. ritual yeah ah the other one is the most fun for me which is the wedding <laughs> the wedding for the rice tree so it's we call it mabiyukukong which is like uh you know as i say we we treat the rice tree like a human so we consider them this is the time when they sprouting the flower and they start the pollinations okay. like like a human they're yeah. they're, they're married getting it on. yeah Let's get it on. yeah okay. <laughs> so at this ceremony we will make a nice spanger which is like a decorations like uh -huh. we have a wedding in our daily life and then we take a bunch of uh, rice tree and make it one as a groom and as a bride so we decorate <laughs> them beautifully right and we consider them as the god of rice okay okay and yeah the, the offering itself at least in my area we make it very very beautiful yes elaborate. and yeah and grandy like like the how you say in english giving some dowry a dowry yeah, yeah. so just like that <laughs> and right. yeah it's a lot of works again but then after uh, the rice ready to be cropped we make another offering for mm. the crop mm. season and the cropping in bali again mostly are manual we uh, cut the uh, stalk and then we beat it, smash it. yeah yes. beat it in the traditional um machine but some area if they are white enough they can take a machine in but usually it's by hand yeah it's kind of being caught in baskets yeah. or something like yeah to shake it out I yeah yeah, some yeah. Of those. yeah you're right that will be the next part after you do the beating you get uh -huh. the rice basically that's like cleaning the rice grain you know mm -hmm. when you beating it there's maybe some small particles like the leaves so by clean them get yeah. the basket and smash like that we get the clean Okay, and then the next step after the crop, they will bring it home and usually put it in the granary, like a storage. Mm. And I told you it's different way to treat the normal rice and the sticky rice, right? Yeah. Because to hear the sticky rice, they make it together, like they, they keep the stock, they not beaten the the stock, but that's make a difference between ah, this is the sticky rice, this is the normal rice. Yeah. And then we I have mean, to dry it. So all of these these processes. Um, I, I love that you have the devotional aspect incorporated. Mm -hmm. So you're doing celebrations with other mm -hmm. humans, mm -hmm. you're connecting with the land, mm -hmm. and you're connecting with God throughout yeah. the season. Yeah. When um, you told me that there were three main colors of rice, uh -huh. the red, brown, uh -huh. the red, black, and white, yeah. and the yellow, that was a bad, a bad rice <laughs> yeah. that has to be turned yellow to turmeric <laughs> or something. But that also mirrors the colors in the bracelets for Brahma, yeah. uh, Vishnu, and Shiva. Yeah. 
And I, I think that's so interesting yeah. that even even in the the honoring colors <laughs> are tied to what sustains the community. Yes. So yeah, just to mention, uh, if no one's know about the colors, uh, in our um, meets it said that the gods come to the earth with four colors of rice, which is black rice, white rice, red rice, and yellow rice. So it's it's related to the uh, nine guardians mm. of the gods that protecting each uh, direction with their own color. So mm. black is for north, white is for east, red south and west is yellow mm. but it said in a myth that the yellow rice you know being cocky and feeling like it's the beautiful one <laughs> and most beautiful and start to you know like teasing the friends so they took the yellow rice out because they say you cannot be cocky you have to be you know humble mm. so i'd love the story mm. <laughs> now we only have red uh, black and white rice so what we do, because we need yellow for the West, now we use turmeric. Okay. Actually, uh, they're related to the uh, Trimurti, the, the gods that the you mentioned. Trimur. So Brahma is in the south with the red color. He's the creations. So when you're born, you come with the blood and the color red represents the blood. <laughs> and it's also with the elements. So Brahma has the elements of fire. So literally it's a red, like. Yeah. Okay, and then uh, Vishnu, which is preserver, with in the north, with the color of black. I love to see it because uh, preserver means the life, right? And in our life, we never know what's happened. It's full of mysteries. So black is a good color to represent. It's also the color of the soil. Oh, yeah, and you're right. That is the life-giving. Yeah. Of all things. On yeah. Earth. Yeah, and the element of Vishnu is water. So you know, water mostly in the earth. So maybe they take the black from the mm. elements as well and then the center is Siva which is multicolor but then we take it as white as mm. you know when multicolor joined it become white the rainbow yes mm. and uh, it's represent the transformations and the illuminations so it's and beautiful it's part color. of your daily life yeah. too like for you you do ritual in the morning uh -huh. and connection with nature yeah. also every day yeah Oh. Well, I'm so happy to have met you. You're sure. such a good yoga teacher, too. You, too. <laughs> thank you for joining, and thank you for asking me these questions. Yeah. I'm so happy I can share what I know. At least this is from my perspective. Maybe some people has their own, yeah. you know. I find the whole... We're doing an inquiry into mm -hmm. how to reconnect with nature as mm -hmm. Westerners who mm -hmm. have lost touch with these cycles. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you're going through that repetition two or three times a year and basically have been doing that for 400 years. Mm -hmm. How long has have those rice fields I don't been know. there? I don't know. 500? Because, oh, I think it's more because uh, when you talk about rice field in Bali, everyone will know about Suba which is like the water irrigation system in Bali and that's also incorporate the God, human nature, and it's uh, it's found like uh, they found it already since nine centuries, nine nine hundred years. Yes. Wow. <laughs> well, I was looking at those terraces and imagining how yeah. much it would have taken to cut those. Yep. Into and, the jungle. And, yeah. When Silva is already avowed as a world heritage mm. by UNESCO since 2012, mm. so you can check. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you. thank you so much. much. My yeah. pleasure. My own experience of 
the Western worldview is that it teaches us that we are independent individual beings, that we sort of end at the skin suit. And all of self-help and psychology is aimed at healing this individual entity, but it doesn't take us so much into the realm of living inside of the web of life. You know, even though I still do a lot of work on the computer, I'm a writer and obviously podcaster and running Rosebud, I think that I've already come to see that the technocracy that we're living within and this experience of the outsized elevation of the individual is a mistake. It's a mistake that my direct experience has been one of increasing interdependence and interconnection with all things. Sometimes it's a little wacky, like I will have a moment of perceiving all of the forces of the universe, like moving around me, how my interaction with the water and the air is, you know, rippling in this sort of pattern of frequencies where we're, we're all connected with one another in, in one, what I would call a Gaia sphere. I mean, you've heard of Gaia, but I think there are problems with calling Gaia, um, Earth Goddess and Mother Earth, and there are problems with biosphere because it's not personal. But we live within the Gaia sphere, and that is a very different way of experiencing oneself as completely interdependent. So I'm sure that you also have had an experience of suddenly perceiving everything at once, of all things working in harmony and ease, and this feeling of how amazing and miraculous it all is. Once when I was driving down the highway in the Sonoma springtime, I had a sudden awareness like that of everything growing all around me, all of nature, with no help or planning or control, working together of a piece, a perfect system that required no toil or effort. It just was. And I wasn't separate from that system. I remember pulling over to the side of the road and letting my awareness stay in a temporary bird's eye perception of the hills and the countryside, the bay and the mountains, all deeply interconnected. And when the awareness passed, I turned on the car and continued driving home. I mean, it's not that ecosystems don't govern themselves, because they do in all kinds of micro interactions and sensitivities. You see birds that fly in formation, and they're governing themselves by perception of the distance between them and the next bird. And they, they use that sort of proprioception and spacing to fly and turn at the same time. My friend Bernie Krauss, told me once, he's a pioneer in soundscapes, that ecosystems govern themselves through sound, that if one species moves out, the species that moves in sounds at the same pitch and at the same time of the day, the species that left. Room here, room here, room here. No room here, no room here. They look for the tonality, and that the natural world is self-regulating itself through harmonics. Species are always communicating their presence. And it's the same way in the world of bacteria and viruses. They're continually sending signals to one another, both to coordinate their actions and to regulate the distance between themselves. You know, the recent discoveries in mushrooms, how they convey signals to one another, as well as on behalf of other plants that mycelium networks form a telecommunication system in the soil. There is also an invisible network present between humans, what my friend Reese Jones calls the limbic internet a group awareness and emotional governance that requires no verbal communication. In other words, the reason I'm saying all of these things is that connectivity and networks are the fundamental design and nature of all of the Gaia sphere. Inside our bodies, 
in between our bodies and other bodies and definitely in between our bodies and all of nature. All of, let me say it this way, in between our bodies and all of the rest of nature. For me, this attention to the natural world was a gift from my grandfather. I was sent alternating summers with my brother to my grandfather's little place on a five by seven mile island in the upper reaches of Lake Michigan. One summer with my grandmother in Germany, the next summer with my grandparents up there. And sometime in the late 1950s, my grandfather had built a two-room cabin and an outhouse on the old property of his grandparents, lugging smooth lake stones up the hill to make this fireplace. And the island was really dominated by sort of a no-nonsense, scrub, simplistic work ethic of Scandinavian immigrants and the palpable legacy of the Potawatomi Indians. Like That was a very alive culture up there. And my experience with my grandfather was that he just was a nature mystic. He was a country mystic. He taught us things like how to fish with a wooden pole, how to dangle from a tree limb to get the perfect drop into a swimming hole, how to carefully peel bark off white birch to use it as paper or to make it into toys. He would teach us about plants, that poison ivy has three leaves on a stem and the red dot in the middle and this powdery coating on the underleaf by lifting it up with a stick. And once I remember him waking us in the night, quietly rustling us from the aluminum cots where we slept next to the kitchen stove, and he held a flashlight in his hand and his forefingers to his lips, and he whispered to us, put on your boots and one of the warmer coats, let's go see some magic. And we closed the cabin's knotty pine door softly and pulled our coats around us, padded up the stands of cedars and pines, past the rock that my grandmother had painted with the word sans souci, French for without a care, and then onto the paved road. And we walked a while past the curve into a big clearing, and he directed our eyes to the north. Dancing in the sky was a light show, of green and gold spiking like fireworks. That, he said, is the aurora borealis, the crown of the earth. It's light at play with the earth's magnetic fields up around the North Pole. You can see it only a few days a year up here and it's early, it's not usual that you would see it in August. He told us that when he was a child, he thought it was fairies or a doorway to fantasy places. And after some silence, he drilled us again on the summer night sky. Where's the Big Dipper? Can you find Polaris, Orion's Belt, Cassiopeia? When my own children were babies, I made a lullaby about that night, which you can find on Spotify also. You don't expect much, but think about your kids now. So what was your childhood experience of being connected to the world of nature? And then think about your children. Like, have you given them nature? And to what extent do they have a relationship with the forest? When I was raising my kids, you know, nature was always part of our family life. We'd go into the woods at all times of year, at all times of day. The little nature center in our town rented out cross-country gear and with a baby on my back and the older ones trying their hardest on tiny little skis and our two white dogs running ahead, we would come over a rise just as the sun slanted in exactly right to make the crust on a snowfall a crystal prism. We would go deep down into the ravines at other times and climb on the ice flows in Lake Michigan. And one day in particular, when, if you know Chicago at all, the forest is covered in trillium in the spring. And 
trillium blossoms spread like a carpet across the whole woods. And we went out early in the day for a hike with my friend Barrett von Meidel, who since has passed, rest in peace, uh, visiting from Germany. And the children were laughing and playing, and he asked, why are they so noisy? And I told him, you know, well, they're kids. And he said, no, that's not why. You have to teach them to listen to nature. I said, you're just being German. They're kids. Let them play. But he insisted, no, seriously, try it. See what happens when you ask them to get quiet and to listen. So we huddled them up, and Barrett used the opportunity to teach them what a poisonous mushroom looked like compared to a non-poisonous mushroom, and that they could tell immediately that any mushroom that is pointed in a certain way, even though it may not be poisonous, was definitely not edible. So he's talking, and then he said, shh, everybody, shh, what do you hear? And they closed their eyes, and they started to listen. So we made that our thing. If we were out and someone heard or saw something beautiful, anyone could speak up. They'd go, shh. And we would hush each other while the person who started the hushing pointed out what they wanted us to see or hear. And in this way, my kids learned some of nature. They learned the wildflowers and to tell the exact time the seasons were changing, to tell time by the position of the sun, whether it was the ice crystal palaces of the hardwoods in winter or the August lakefront, all humid sand and alewives and 17-year cicadas, or the ravine and field dress and autumn leaves. Nature was a call for all of us to remembering and, you know, they were also playing League of Legends. They were they were doing schoolwork. They were doing sports. But somehow, like, putting this into their systems has made several of them, like, really connected to the land. Uh, the boys went on to do Outward Bound, a national outdoor leadership school, and wilderness training. And they live in the, the wild parts of the country, the more wild parts of the country. And they're out every day participating in hiking and skiing and and working the land. And my daughter, similarly, she is now tending to her own gardens. And, you know, she'll send me pictures when she's out on a walk of beautiful, like mystical leaves trapped in fractured ice patterns or the way lichen or moss has created this deeply layered texturing in the woods. And she uses that in the way she designs clothing, this appreciation for texture. And another son is reclaiming a hillside with his wife in Los Angeles for bats and birds and uh, wild perennials and local herbs and reinstating the urban gardening uh, tradition to living well with our surroundings. So that works. And I wonder how it is for you and your family and how you're related to the ecosystems that you live within. So after Chicago, I mean, I think there's a few more little stories I want to tell, and then I'm going to get into some scholarship. One thing that changed my experience, because I was also kind of caught up in that time of my life in a very business, capitalist entrainment to achievement and status. And I was not a non-consumer. I, I really liked nice things, and I didn't really have any awareness of the connection between my love of nature and appreciation for ecosystems and what I was consuming. And I didn't have anybody who was active in environmentalism. And I was so busy raising the kids and, and that, I, that I really wasn't paying attention, nor did I have anyone in my family circle or friendship circle who was paying attention to the impact that consumerism was having on the planet. So I had this love, which many of you might resonate with, this intimacy with nature, but also sort of a blindness to the systems 
that were messing it up. I mean, I can remember environmental disasters like Three Mile Island being in the news when I was young or the ozone layer, but I was really little and I, I never really got awakened to that. My family was much more about uh, being a successful, uh, financial, productive member of society. There wasn't really a sense of becoming an ecological activist. I had never heard of Rachel Carson at that point. I, I wasn't aware of Silent Spring. I wasn't aware of the environmental movement like Sierra Club. and None of that was in my consciousness. So when I met my husband on an airplane going to a yoga teacher training in 2004, and our courtship began, I learned a whole new world. Not only was he an environmental attorney writing amazing policy in the state of California, like the greenhouse gas bill that California was a pioneer in, or working with the Williamson Act, trying to preserve farmland. He was the attorney for Audubon Society. Uh, He was the attorney for the Geothermal Energy Association. I mean, I could go on. So John's father, Julian, founded the very first environmental magazine in the country. And his parents had shunned consumerism and left a sort of white shoe Minneapolis family lifestyle to live in a very simple manner in the country, country club to the country. And they were very um, early vegetarians, portion control, live lightly on the land, hike, canoe. Uh, Julian also followed the footsteps of Lewis and Clark or followed the canoe strokes of Lewis and Clark and did a cross-country paddle. So that's the family that he came from. So as we started courting and I moved to California, I really fell in love with California geography under his very well-informed tutelage. We explored every corner of the state up and down from the Salton Sea to the Marble Mountains. Once we spent five days on the road camping along the way, I mean, I think it was the first time that I camped as an adult was with him, exploring really out-of-the-way places that were human versions of isolated ecosystems, I guess, exploring places like Slab City, which is an abandoned marine training base that has been transformed into an outpost for artists and eccentrics, kind of a post-apocalyptic RV park for people on the fringe of American life. And he knew a ton about birds, and he taught me what a life list was, all of the birds you've ever seen noted in a single place. I saw a funny meme the other day that says, getting to middle age is like this. You don't care about birds at all. And then one day you're like, oh my gosh, look, there's a blue-titted warbler. You know. But he taught me about birding early as a young person's thing, being slow enough to watch the environment. And you know, it, it was a, a big learning curve for me. He used to follow me around the house and redo the compost and the recycling, which we didn't really have where I lived. We had mixed use recycling. You threw it into a bin. I knew nothing about composting. You know, so, but I learned a lot, even to the point of beginning to write and try to teach other people like me the habits of becoming ecologically aware. So it's been a growth process to connect my actions to my love. And it's been another growth process of understanding my love of nature, not as something outside of myself, but my love of it as living system that I'm nested within. I was was reading something recently, I'm losing the train on who it was, on how to experience yourself as being not on the planet, within 
the biosphere. And, and that one way to do it is to go into a canyon because in the canyon, you really feel the embrace of the earth. Another is to go into a cave. And I, I'm remembering now um, being with Suzanne Sterling um, inside of the lava cave on, on Sundari Farms, a community we have on Hawaii. Like, I think she took 16 people in there for a New Year's ritual. And you're literally like in this enclosed lava bubble inside of the earth and kind of a womb of the earth and and the feeling of being completely protected. Now, you might feel that also when you're underwater, but I want you to imagine that that's the feeling of air around you, that air is forming like the air and this very thin, beautiful layer of atmosphere that allows us to be alive, that we're embedded within, that, that to feel that as if it's holding you. So to feel that you're part of things is an, is another evolution. We evolve to loving nature as an object, to seeing the interconnection between our actions and nature and the rest of nature, to feeling ourselves enclosed in the biosphere, to then feeling plants and animals and trees as alive. You know, another, another example of that in my own evolution was going to a community workshop with my son Connor in at ZEG, the Center for Experimental Community Design in Germany. We had been familiar with the basics of ZEG and we wanted to understand what people there were learning about living together. They say that they believe it takes a village to raise a consciousness and that they intend that their work and play together will be transformative in their small community, but also for the rest of the community of the world. So Connor and I decided to go visit Zeg, and it's an hour outside of Berlin, and we drove through this black sky summer thunderstorm and hail. And when we got to Zeg, the sun came out, and there was this luminous clarity suffusing the fields and the trees. And I've told this story before, um, but our arrival to visit the community unintentionally coincided with the beginning of a three-day event that brought together the global leadership of eco-villages and intentional communities from three continents. Basically, a lot of people who are looking for better ways to organize humanity. Because it was a learning event, there were pavilions and workshops on a wide variety of topics, ranging from how to use solar power to food workshops to managing relationships with local conventional communities and townships. And one of the workshops was on practicing ESP with people, animals, and plants. Attunement in a deep way, like how do you feel yourself and feel the rest of the growing biosphere, the rest of the green and growing world, the divine greenness. I had never even heard of plant and animal telepathy practice at that point. So we paired up in the workshop and tried some exercises designed to elicit ESP skills in people. Like, how do you feel someone? And they gave us a very simple exercise to sit with someone else and tune into them. And then one person would imagine a color and transmit it to our partner. My assigned partner saw the green of the sun coming through those rain-soaked leaves. Uh, Exactly the image I pictured in my mind and had invited her to read. She sent me a snowball. And I caught that in return as sort of a white spaciousness. And I was pretty surprised. One of the instructions they gave us was, you know, don't analyze it. Just go with the first visual imprint that you get, that the subconscious mind speaks in pictures. It's it's a limbic, it's lower in the, in the brain stack. So the next assignment they gave us, and I've told this story before, so if you're a friend of mine, you've probably heard it, so bear with me. But the next assignment was to find a plant and talk to it. 
and I was really skeptical, but game. So I put my full heart into it and I found a spot near a lovely leafing out tree, sat down beside it and dropped into meditation. And when my heartbeat and breathing felt synchronized, I followed the suggested protocol, which was to first ask permission to converse by telepathing to the tree a simple question. Hi, can we communicate? And after receiving a feeling of agreement back from the tree, I asked the tree what its life was like. What was it like to be a tree? What did the tree want to show me? Bowl me over because what ensued was this powerful, powerful visual. Instantly, the green field that I was sitting in turned to stark snow and I felt a rapid inward pull to the center and deep underground about four or five feet into the earth, a sensation of being curled up into a warm ball. And that was followed by a huge exhale with a mandate to grow and grow and grow, reaching and reaching out as fast as possible. That feeling was like as if the branches were reaching and the leaves were reaching and the sprouts were reaching and reaching and reaching. And that was followed again by a slowing down as the growth met resistance and then winter came on again and you were back in the root ball. The tree showed me the progression and sensation of its annual life cycle, the huge oscillation in its force its contraction and expansion. It was vast. It was a very fast experience, but incredibly vivid. And it it changed my understanding of like, oh, trees just grow naturally with the seasons. In autumn, they just go into their declension and it's no problem. It's, it's not that. It's a tension. It also changed the way I approach midlife, but that's an, another conversation. Like, well, okay, it's not another conversation. Just keep growing. Just keep growing. You want to grow and learn until you can't, and you have to go back into your little root ball. So Connor didn't have that experience. He talked to a weed. The weed told him to fuck off. He went to play Frisbee, and that was that. But our experience at Zag really did inform my understanding of the consciousness of trees and other green creatures, which has followed me ever since. Now I live in the redwoods a lot of the time, and I live on the community in Hawaii a lot of the time, and in both of those places, like the redwoods around my backyard and around my deck, as I sit with them, they each emit their own frequency. They have names. They have their own sound patterns. They have identities. And to become intimate and in love and to see them as living and to speak with them and engage with them as living has been a profound transformation. We're no longer talking just about recycling, you know? Now we're talking about seeing the entire world as enchanted and ensouled and embodied, which is a very different way to walk in nature. Well, maybe saying it's a different way is wrong. I want to say it's an old way, that what I'm calling for now is a deep reconciliation with our earthling selves, with the tenderness and wonder and awe and relatedness, intimacy that prior indigenous smaller tribal societies know, like the way I started with the Balinese farmer, that our indigenous brothers and sisters in the Americas know, but out of greed and capitalism and incredible self-righteousness of the colonial mindset, uh, this knowing was shamed and murdered and beaten and educated out of most of those traditions and has been very tenuously maintained and transmitted and is now enjoying a resurgence globally. There's so much wisdom with how to live lightly and be satisfied with your beautiful relationships in your community and with 
being in a harmonious cultivation of the land. If you have a sense of how Native American tribes in the West farmed, they were migratory, but they had developed a system of tying down oaks to make it accessible to gather acorns. They had developed systems of planting along riverbanks. It was almost an invisible form of agriculture that allowed it to be integrated to the land. And I know that's not going to ever, at this stage of our lives, replace giant megastores, but we can definitely put some of those practices in place in our own lives. And part of that is our consumption. So I don't want to get into a whole lecture on consumption. I want to talk about the worldview of of how we heal and who we are now and about an emerging field called eco-psychology, which has been you know, in the works for 20 years. And this theory is aimed at teaching psychologists and psychiatrists, a field that was developed really after the Cartesian taxonomic revolution of seeing atomistic parts rather than a whole integrated field. Uh, it was developed after the individualism of the assembly line and all of that stuff happened. So psychology and psychiatry largely look at you and me as individuals that have a lot of stuff going on in our brains and that the problems in our lives are from how we operate inside of ourselves, inside of our thinking. Systems theory, family systems expanded that into like how the family is interrelated. That's been you know, talking to your inner child has been a thing for a long time. It's rare that psychology and self-help in particular will speak to the idea of, you know, a lot of what's bothering you is because the world outside of you is sick. It's broken. You know, a lot of what's causing your illness is because of the water you're drinking and the food you're eating and the time you're spending consuming news and adrenaline rushes from crisis and the way that you're living with with nature or not with nature. And that by treating your psychiatric or psychological difficulty, your anxiety or your sleep or your depression, as if it was something that was just a molecule in your brain that was wrong, like you could fix it with a drug or ameliorate it with a drug, or that it was something that was wrong with you, is sort of missing the point that we're nested in these larger systems. I mean, Hippocrates wrote, 2,500, 2,600 years ago, a treatise on airs, waters, and places, which while it's a little, you know, if you read the actual text, it's it's quite superstitious and racist and contrived, but he's trying to make the connection between the water we drink and the kinds of diseases that show up in a particular place and the way the temperature and the winds flow and the mineral content of things and, you know, that that impacts how we live. It, the, my, my point is that he's creating a basis for medical science that says, look at the environment that people are living in. So I'm going to read you a few pieces. James Hillman writes an essay called A Psyche, the Size of the Earth. And in that essay, he says, whatever I claim to be me has at least a portion of its roots beyond my agency and my awareness. He then talks about separation, but this is sort of the heart of the argument, and this is a quote. Psychology is bound to encourage us to take human emotions, relationships, wishes, and grievances utterly out of proportion 
in view of the vast disasters now being suffered by the world. This subjectivist exaggeration that psychology has fostered is coming home to roost because the symptoms that are coming back to the consulting room are precisely those that its theory engenders, borderline disorders in which the personality does not conform to the limits set by psychology, preoccupation with subjective moods, which we call addictions and recovery, an inability to let the world in to one's perceptual field called attention deficit disorders or narcissism, and a vague depressed exhaustion from trying so hard to cope with the enlarged expectations of private self-actualization apart from the actual world. And into this field come environmental medicine and environmental psychology, environmental psychiatry too, where you're looking at everything in the environment and how it impacts the individual. People are doing this in the design world, like in the structure of offices, you know, interior architecture, uh, the quality of the carpet, the lighting, the sounds. It looks at material cellular stuff, like how do the chemicals in the carpet impact your overall health? Is it toxic to you? But it also talks about how the textures, the colors, everything impacts the nervous system of the individual. Does it create a high alarm, a constant alert, or does it create calm and a sense of safety and sanctuary so that the nervous system can get about doing other creative and deeper joyful things? And in this essay, Hillman says, my concern is specifically for psychotherapy and psychology. He says, I do not want it to be swallowed up in its caverns of interiority, lost in its own labyrinthine explorations and minutiae of memories, feelings, and language, or the yet smaller interiorities of biochemistry, genetics, and brain dissection. He is really advancing the ecological psyche. He calls it the soul of the world by which the human soul is afflicted and to which the human soul is commencing to turn with fresh interest because in this world soul, the human soul has always had its home. The great Australian rainforest activist, John Seed, put it this way. It is obvious to me that the forest can't be saved one at a time, nor can the planet be saved one issue at a time. Without a profound revolution in human consciousness, all of the forests will soon disappear. I mean, when... The cathedral at the heart of Paris burned down. They could not find any trees in all of Europe that would be the same size and old growth as the trees that were used to build Notre Dame. The forests are disappearing. I mean, Seed talks about saving the planet. Here, another gem from my former husband is that he always laughed when people talked about saving the planet or saving the earth because he said the earth is going to be fine. It's us and the beautiful ecosystems and diversity of the biosphere that we have now, the, the incredible richness of flora and fauna that exists, including us, that's what will disappear. He said, Mother Nature always bats last. Being a baseball fan, he said, Mother Nature always bats last. So how do we, in the words of Dave Foreman, open our souls to love this glorious, luxuriant, animated planet? Because without that, we're, of course, 
risking our own survival and we're also damaging our own mental health. So taking this into a little bit of a how-to, I'll share with you this piece. This is from John McClellan in The Many Voices of the Boulder Creek Watershed. It's called The Practice of Personal Landscape. Most of us remain strangers to the landscapes we live in and work in. The following four principles will help you become intimate with landscape and culture. Number one, love it. Love doesn't arise out of an environmental improvement program or externally applied values. Real love depends on respect for all that one meets in the beloved. And since all modern landscapes are wounded, this means appreciation for their beauty and woundedness together. So love it. As an aside, before I read the rest, loving something is paying attention, is showing up for it, is noticing. Okay, back to McClellan. Two, use it. You must make practical use of a landscape if you wish to get to know it. Live in it, meditate in it, work in it. Hunt, gather something you need and love to find in it. This use is what makes the relationship come alive. Three, study it. You have to get to know the birds, the insects, the plants, the animals, the clouds, the stars, the seasonal weather patterns, the roads, houses, stores, factories, the energy grids, the communication networks, the pollutants, dumps, and wastelands. And four, he says, one place. Be specific. Love, use, and study one place at a time. The more specific and limited the place, the more personal and intimate the relationship will be. Become intimate with your own backyard, with a bit of riverbank, with a pond or hill. The rest of the watershed, the meta landscape, the continent, planet, and universe will naturally be drawn into this intimacy. Well, that last one I have trouble with because I'm a very mobile person. I'm more like the hummingbirds and the butterflies and, you know, than the tree at this point in my life, not so grounded. But I will take that into consideration as I build my next phase of life out. When we were home in California during the pandemic, one of the exercises we did was going out into the yard and identifying the species of every plant growing on our back plot and in our little front yard. In It was a city lot, so you know it wasn't that big. But rather than just being, oh, that big cool palm tree or that particular succulent, it became, there's Agnes, the agave, Americana, or there, there's this little group of small blue agave that we called the children. You know, we became personal, and it was a very different experience of being with those beings. So I'm going to close on this. Um, last summer, I did a festival day with a couple hundred people called Your Body, This Earth, and we did it again in Massachusetts with about 100 people. And it was a day of re-experiencing together what our relationship to the natural world is. Doing it through yoga and breathing, like just how every inhale and exhale is your participation in life itself, that it's your active awareness and participation of your embodiment as part of a web that you're never separate from. We did it by doing attunement exercises with one another and triads on eco-grief and climate grief and when we first became aware of the threat to the species and the planet and how that's living in us, how we're holding that fear. We did uh, 
connection with the earth by touching the soil and planting things and looking at and feeling and being with the trees. We talked about our relationship to each of the elements, air and fire and water. We asked people to remember and speak to their favorite experiences with their most memorable waterways. And the stories that came up were so beautiful, like individual lakes they named and creeks and and when they didn't have a waterway, like the relationship to the water coming out of the tap in their house or the water that they did their washing or cooking with and the big, vast ocean and the creatures that live inside of there. I mean, just or, or looking at fire and the, and the relationship to that element. Man, by the end of the day, the sense of being in the web and becoming aware of that was so powerful. We don't have to create something new in ourselves. We just have to become more aware that the whole world lives inside of us already. So I'd just like to invite a small moment now of remembrance. So I invite you to be in this remembering with me, a time when you were joyfully facing the sunshine, a time when you were soaked in rainwater or floating in the sea, a time when a particular flower caught your attention and you just dropped into amazement at its fractal sacred geometrical beauty or its color. And in this blank space, remember a few things that are your own. It's worth protecting. It's worth connecting to. You yourself are perfect nature, born from a seed, grown into a being, following the code of your unraveling, fulfilling the intentional design of your being. There is nothing wrong with you, no more than there could be anything wrong with a tree or a flower. I'm going to put in the show notes for this episode many resources that you might find supportive and inspiring in managing your eco-grief and activating intimately locally with the land and also possibly in a more political manner if that's in your heart and soul. On the sensingwoman.org site, there are also a couple of the panels that focus specifically on re-enchanting the world, um, that focused on environmental toxins and how they make us sick, that focused on how we can begin to see our bodies as nature. So I invite you to go over and look at the archives from Sensing Woman and enjoy those there in the Friday section. I'll put those links in the show notes also. And there are wonderful poets and teachers like the Grand Dame Joanna Macy doing the work that reconnects or reading Thomas Berry or reading some of the naturalist poets. All right, as we close out, I would like to uh, do a little advertisement for our company, Rosebud Woman, rosewoman.com. We're very happy to report that the Cleaner Beauty Bill Uh, the Safer Beauty package was passed and signed into law. We were part of supporting that, and it's part of a big movement in the beauty and skincare industry to come into greater alignment with human physiology, not putting toxins into the body. It's largely focused on humans and supply chain transparency. We think beauty will be safer for all of us when it goes a step further when it comes from sustainably harvested ingredients when it's processed with fair labor practices and when it's shipped with clean fuels and packaged with minimal packaging 
So check us out at rosewoman.com. Beautiful, intimate care products for women of all ages, but very, very helpful in perimenopause and menopause as you enter that natural stage of your life and for intimate connection with other humans in sexuality or in play or in nurturing massage oils and other things. So thanks for letting me do the little commercial break. You can find me on Instagram at the.rose.woman. So to your health and well-being, to your perfect joy, to your interconnectedness, farewell earthlings, all love. Love.